Welcome to this episode of the Golden Age of Cricket podcast, a program in which we interview historians about particular cricketers from that far gone period immediately prior to the First World War. My name is Tom Ford. There are few cricketers from the Golden Age who remain such an enigma as C.B. Fry, captain of the England cricket team, footballer, world record long jump holder, classicist, politician, naval captain, novelist, journalist, academic, there was no end to his talent. He even came close to becoming the King of Albania. English commentator John Arlett described him as, quote, probably the most variously gifted Englishman of any age. On more than one occasion during his playing career, he was the undisputed best batsman in the world. Yet he never toured Australia as a player, had questionable ties to the Nazis, and was troubled throughout his life by mental health issues, probably ignited by a less-than-ideal domestic setting. My guest today is Ian Wilton, who has enjoyed a varied professional career in fields of politics, statistics and sport, including six years as the MCC's Head of Communications at Lords. He's now in the process of making a career change, after completing some professional exams to become an independent financial advisor based in the Essex-Suffolk area, where he now lives with his family. More than 20 years after his biography of C.B. Fry was first published, Ian is now hoping to write, much later than planned, a second cricket book, this one focusing on the first Cricket World Cup, back in 1975. Ian's early research and interviews are going well, but if any of the 1975's competitors are listening... He says that he'd absolutely love to hear from you. Perhaps you can write to me and I'll pass your email on. I'm thrilled to welcome Ian to the podcast to discuss the life and cricket career of C.B. Fry. Hello, Ian. Hi, Tom. How are you? Very well, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to do this. Pleasure. It's often been suggested that a cricketer like C.B. Fry, indeed a polymath like C.B. Fry, couldn't exist today. Was Fry completely of his time? Yes, I think he was. I think if you just look at maybe the the two sports for which he's most famous, cricket and football, uh, you know, there was the period where people could play both. So cricket uh, in England would be played uh, sort of April, May through to September. You'd have the football season maybe starting in September, going through to April or May. So it was possible for you to do cricket in the summer and uh, football in the winter. But I just don't think you can do that anymore. The football season, as we know, has just expanded and expanded and expanded. Um, the cricket calendar also is just becoming ever more ever more crowded, often longer as well. Um, so I don't think you could do those two sports at CB's level uh, now in the way that you could have done you know, in his time or into the interwar period. I just don't think that's possible anymore. What about, and I'm going to quote um, uh, Neville Cardis, if we're, if we're thinking about CB as with all of his talents. Um, I'm going to quote Neville Cardis, and I got this quote from your book, uh, Ian, so forgive me for uh, (laughs) stealing it, but he wrote, he belonged to an age not obsessed with specialism. He was one of the last of the English tradition of the amateur, the connoisseur, and in the most delightful sense of the word, the dilettante. Do you think that's the perfect summation for CB? 
I think in, in most respects, I think it is. I think um, the one sort of question mark I would pose to that is CB is an amateur. Uh, you know, yes, he was. And he absolutely sort of had to play as an amateur, you know, given amongst other things, his sort of, you know, social status. Uh, you know, if you go to Repton to be educated, then go onto, onto Oxford University, you sort of have to play as an amateur. You have to be a gentleman rather than a player, if you see what I mean. Um, but CB wasn't a pure amateur. He just, you know, he had the, in a sense, the background, not least educationally, but he didn't really, for a long time, have the money. So for him, he had to do this sort of awkward crossover uh, between being an amateur and, in a sense, being a professional. You know, there's the phrase shamateur, which sort of, you know, is the hybrid of the two. And, you know, look, it wasn't unique in this respect. Uh, you have a number of examples of people who were uh, supposedly amateurs, but seem to land quite sort of cushy jobs as a club secretary or assistant secretary, for example, or they happen to get a a bit of a non-job with one of the financial supporters of one of the English counties. Um, CB Fry didn't do that, but he did do a lot of things that meant that he, you know, he was actually earning money from sports in a way that was sort of frowned upon for someone of his background. So, you know, he did a lot of journalism in particular, at which he was extremely good. Um, and he was uh, the subject of a lot of advertising as well. I think a lot of people in English cricket associate Dennis uh, Dennis Compton is the first person to sort of go down that route. Uh, there's the famous Dennis Compton Brill Cream Boy advert. I think if you go back further in the past, I think there was a, a Coleman's Mustard advert that featured WG Grace. But the person who really went down that route pretty aggressively uh, was C.B. Fry, um, I think through financial necessity rather than anything else. So, you know, he couldn't be paid to play, uh, to play cricket, uh, but he managed to make an earning, a living from it. Uh, by writing on it and, as I say, by being subject of a, uh, advertising for a whole variety of products. What literature already existed on C.B. Fry when you began researching your book? I think there were uh, two main things uh, that were directly helpful. There was a, a biography of him by a man called A. Wallace Myers that came out in 1912 when C.B. was 40, so that was helpful. And then there had been a, a biography, a longer biography, Often published, I think, in the in the 1980s by a, a writer called Clive Ellis, and again, that was helpful. And in terms of the sort of context, seeing the man in the round, it was also remarkably helpful that a, a man called Ronald Morris had written a book about uh, Mrs. Fry, Susie Fry's wife. Um, and Ronald Morris had been a, a, a boy at the, the Mercury Naval Training College that C.B. Fry and his wife uh, ran, and he wrote a you know a very Serenely honest book about you know, his experience of the Mercury, and that had led him to look into the background, the rather scandalous background of uh, of C.B. Fry's wife, who was a key figure in the running of the Mercury over you know, for many decades. C.B. Fry's highly entertaining autobiography, Life Worth Living, from 1939, was hugely influential in shaping our impression of him as an overachieving Renaissance man. But as your book showed on more than one occasion, Fry would embellish his achievements. How frustrating was this as a biographer, and why do you think he did this? I think you're absolutely right. It is sort of hugely frustrating when he's got all these remarkable achievements to his name. Uh, absolutely no embellishment was required. I mean, you know, he did play football for England on a couple of occasions. He did appear in an FA Cup final. So those are his sort of uh, footballing credentials, uh, really clear and strong for everyone to see. Um, as an athlete, he excelled at Oxford and he equaled uh, the world 
long jump record. So again, he's got these re remarkable athletic achievements to his to his name. And as a cricketer, I mean, you know, his record is phenomenal. I've just been rereading the book in preparation for this uh, this discussion today, and I've forgotten what an extraordinary cricketer he was. And the sheer weight of runs that he scored, the number of records that he that he broke, I and mean, it was a phenomenal record. So yes, he had absolutely no need to embellish things, but he did. And I think that is probably the result of when Life Worth Living was written. It was written in the 19, late 1930s. And by that stage, obviously, CB's sporting uh, success years were, were well behind him. His career had pretty much ended, you know, just before the First World War, that he then came back and did play a bit uh, after the First World War had ended. Um, but yeah, by the time that the books come out in the, in the late 1930s, you know, it's 20 years plus, uh, maybe more than that, that uh, you know, his sporting glory days were, were in the past. So. I think maybe because some of the things that he'd done in the interwar period hadn't gone well, like his attempts to become an MP, they'd been unsuccessful because also he'd been out of the limelight, which he enjoyed through, through a, as a result of a, a period of fairly serious mental illness. Uh, I think he wanted to, with his autobiography, sort of come back with a, a bit of a bang. And so, yes, I think that's why he did add some sort of bells and whistles to his uh, sporting achievements, which he really didn't need to do. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's one of the frustrations you you have, I think, when you get close to your to your subject, that he did these things which he didn't need to do. So that does take some of the gloss off him, if, in a sense. But on the other hand, you have to say that Life Worth Living, for all its factual inaccuracies, is a beautifully, beautifully written book. And so many people have praised it as uh, something that you know, gives a great insight to the, the golden age of cricket and some of the characters who played within it, um, but also to his his life more broadly. So. Yes, it's flawed. Yes, it's got these exaggerations that I wish he hadn't put in, but it is still a fabulous, fabulous read. Ian, let's return to the to the very beginning. Charles Burgess Fry was born in Croydon on the twenty fifth of April, eighteen seventy two. What can you tell us about his early education and later higher education at Oxford and how it shaped the man he was to become? Yeah, as you rightly say, he's uh, born in Croydon in Surrey, basically on the, the verges of, uh, of London. And there is now a, what we call in, in England a, a blue plaque outside his house, the place where he was born to sort of signify his birthplace. In some ways, it's probably not the most appropriate place for the plaque. I can see why it was put up there. Uh, but there isn't a really deep connection between C.B. Fry and Croydon. It didn't have a big, big influence on him. The family's roots were very much uh, in, in Sussex. And a lot of his formative experiences as a boy were actually in, in Kent. Uh, but then I think where C.B. Fry starts to emerge as C.B. Fry, in a sense, is when he goes off to uh, a public school at Repton in Derbyshire. And that's when he, his talent first really becomes very obvious, especially on the sporting scene. And then from Repton, it's a fairly sort of logical path um, up to Oxford University, where he becomes, you know, the absolute, uh, if you like, golden boy of his his generation. So there are lots of other uh, subsequently very, very successful people who went to his college, Wadham College at Oxford. But C.B. Fry was the absolute star. So, it, you know, in his time there, it becomes known as uh, Fry College rather than Wadham College. He's known as... Um, King Charles, which I suppose is quite appropriate given they've got the, the coronation of King Charles yes. coming up very soon. So he's known as yeah, all kinds of these names. There's Fry's College, there's 
King Charles, there's, he's known as Almighty at one point. And he was this extraordinarily successful, uh, glamorous figure at, uh, at Oxford University. And that's when he first, uh, first comes to national consciousness. He was a prodigious talent in numerous sports, as you've just mentioned, um, apart from cricket, namely football, rugby and athletics. How should we remember his contributions to these other sports today? I think it was, you know, he was an ex- extraordinary cricketer, clearly. And he was also a, a very good footballer and a very fine athlete. I think when you look back on his uh, footballing career and you look back on his athletics career, you think, wow, you know, some of his achievements are, are pretty remarkable. But maybe one of the frustrations is they could have been just even more remarkable than they were. So, yes, he gets two England football caps uh, 10 years apart and does get through to the FA Cup final. It is just a shame that he ended up on the, the losing side there after a replay because, you know, uh, a, there's a bit of a difference between being an FA Cup finalist and being an FA Cup medal winner. Um, likewise with athletics, I mean, you know, it's an extraordinary achievement to equal the, the world long jump record when you're a student at university. Uh, but again, you think it's just a slight shame that he didn't actually get the record outright. And I think probably, given the kind of character that he was, maybe a particular regret of, of mine, looking back on his career, is that, you know, in addition to the football achievement, the, the football achievements that he had, in addition to the remarkable cricketing achievements that he had, you know, he didn't do the one thing that would have been, I think, the, the sort of uh, the stardust on top of his sporting career, which was to go to the Olympic Games and be successful there. So, yeah, certainly if you look at his figures, his statistics, he could have really done extremely well in the 1896 Olympic Games, the first sort of games of the modern era. He could have uh, absolutely won gold medals there, probably could have done so in 1900 as well. Um, but certainly he said that he never knew that the 1896 Olympics were were taking taking place. So <laughs> that, that explains why he didn't go there. And, you know, I've looked into that and we won't ever know whether he did know about them or didn't know about them. I think he probably didn't. They were organised in a slightly shambolic way. Um, but yeah, how remarkable it would have been had he gone to Athens and had he got gold medals to go on top of all the other sporting accolades that he got over the years. And to pick up on something you told me the other day, uh, Ian, and I think this uh, came about in some of your subsequent research, is he had a, a hand in, um, a small hand in the founding of Chelsea Football Club, is that correct? Yes, he was. And I've not actually looked into it, but uh, I did, after the book came out, I came across a fairly fleeting reference to the fact that he'd been a patron of Chelsea, I think, when probably the money was being put together to get uh, Chelsea up and running. Uh, but his main connections were with you know, some of the amateur clubs like the Corinthians um, and then with Southampton and then fairly briefly with, with Portsmouth. Um, but yeah, he got his uh, first England cap when he was at Oxford. He got his second England cap when he was playing at Southampton. Um, and you know, I think when you, there's a fairly when you look at the records, look at the uh, the reports of the time, there's a, a fair degree of agreement, I think, on what kind of footballer he was. I think he was good, but he was far from you know faultless. He did make quite a lot of mistakes quite consistently. Uh, but a lot of the articles say, well, you know, one thing he did have is he turned as a sprinter. He absolutely had the pace to get back, and so if he made one mistake, he could get back and tackle the man who, who got past him in the first instance. So he, he was. I think, like I said earlier, I think he was probably a good or very good footballer, whereas in contrast, he was an absolutely brilliant cricketer. Now, he was one of a handful of English amateurs of that era, the so-called golden age, who never actually toured Australia 
as a cricketer. Why was this in C.B. Fry's case? Well, I think um, you know he had the same, in a sense, faced the same problems as a lot of other England amateurs did. In, in that, you know, if you were going to tour, you had you know your some of your expenses met, but but that was it. There was no sort of uh, money to cover the loss of income that you'd experience. You know, first of all, of course, on the, the boat out, there was a long journey there, long journey back, and then tours in those days were, by today's standards, pretty pretty long ones. So he'd been you know away from England for pretty much half the year. And so that would have deprived him of the ability to earn the income that he was getting from his journalistic career. And as time went on, he had responsibilities uh, to this Mercury Naval Training College that I mentioned. And particularly, I think, when he had the last opportunity to tour Australia, he was very conscious of uh, being away for such a, a long period of time and the school would have been sort of struggling without him. So I think it was a, a massive shame that he never toured Australia as a player. He obviously went there later, 36, 37, as a journalist. Um, but yeah, was, he wasn't the only amateur, amateur to miss out on touring Australia for principally financial reasons. But it was a shame. Lots of people said the way he batted, they thought actually he'd have done incredibly well on Australian wickets as if he hadn't done well enough on uh, English ones. Um, so yeah, it's a big shame that we will never know how practice he'd done in Australia. And again, one of the again sort of frustrations you experience as someone writing about C.B. Fry is that you know, he had these remarkable achievements, but one thing he never quite did was to get the hundred first-class hundreds. And I'm sure if he'd done one or two tours of Australia, and indeed played more in a whole number of English seasons, he absolutely would have got that landmark and gone way, way beyond if he played more. It's interesting you make the point that many critics mentioned both at the time and historians subsequently that had he gone to Australia he probably would have uh, met with a great deal of success because it um, would have worked in his favour uh, because of the style of batsman he was um, but despite he never him never going to Australia and this is I think in keeping with his personality he wasn't afraid to offer advice to other cricketers on how to play cricket in Australia and uh, most famous famously as you portrayed in your book in a series of articles, um, which uh, was, I think, during the MCC tour of 1903-04, which, of course, the captain of the team at the time, Plum Warner, uh, did not take kindly to, <laughs> probably knowing that Fry had never been in Australia. And uh, Warner hit back with his own series of articles repudiating what Fry had said. Um, what What does this tell us about... Fry, the person. I think it does display that you know at that period, I think he did have supreme self confidence um, in, I think, in his understanding of cricket, his understanding of batsmanship, um, and also in his ability to to write authoritatively and convincingly uh, from thousands and thousands of miles away. So, yeah, I think it was immodest. Um, in some ways, it was possibly ridiculous to, to comment in that kind of detail to make recommendations when you never set foot in the country at all. And as you say, Plum Warner obviously found that deeply irritating at one point and didn't really attempt to, to mask that. Um, but yeah, I think it was just the, the confidence from C.B. Fry. And I think the fact that he had thought a lot about batsmanship and, you know, we know that he wrote the, the books on great, great batsmen, great bowlers, the book on batsmanship, so all of which were, you know, very, very widely praised, or largely praised at the time, and have been hugely praised in the intervening periods. So I think he absolutely 
did know a huge amount about what he was talking about. But yes, I think he did sort of um, take things a bit far by pontificating on you know, pictures and uh, uh, things like that that he had no first-hand experience of at all. Hmm. What sort of batsman was Fry? As an amateur or a shamateur, whatever word we want to use, I assume he belonged to the school that believed it was how you scored your runs and not how many? I think that's, um, yeah, that's largely largely true. I think um, one of the remarkable things about him and also his partnership with uh, Ranjit Sinji was the way in which they changed perceptions of batting and in a sense what was the done thing if you were an amateur gentleman and certainly when you read about how the game was perceived in the very early years of Fry's career it was you know you if the ball was uh, on off stump or outside off stump you know you play as a gentleman you play a sort of cavalier attacking shot at it and if it was down the leg side or leg stump you would probably largely ignore it um and the remarkable thing about sort of Fran Ranji is they sort of regarded that as a, a nonsense. And so they started playing uh, on the leg side in a way which was quite revolutionary, really, for the time. And again, I think one of the other conventions was that you did the sort of, you know, gorgeous flowing front foot uh, offside drives. That would be the sort of shot expected of the gentleman amateur. Um, but Fry in particular was also just keen to uh, exploit back foot play as well. So I think he did, with Ranji, he did change the way that batting was done, the way that batting was perceived. Um, so that, you know, over time, uh, even gentlemen playing on the, the leg side, gentlemen playing off the back foot was accepted. And, you know, CB proved that that was a sensible tactic just through the sheer weight of runs that he, he scored in that way. So I think cricket became a much more round-the-wicket, uh, if you like, game as a result of the way that uh, C.B. Fry played it and Ranji played it with you know, leg glances and so on. So I think that's one of his claims to fame. I think he did uh, contribute to a to revolutionisation of, uh, of batting. Um, in terms of the point about, again, how gentlemen were expected to play, I think C.B. Fry wanted to be seen as someone who played the game sort of naturally and instinctively and so on. Um, but it's very clear that he did think about the game a huge amount. He did practice the game a huge amount. He wasn't always very keen to be seen to be practicing. You know, it was the thing as a gentleman was to be seen to play the game in quite an effortless way. And sometimes he, he would, when he was out in the middle, he would bat in a way that looked effortless, but a huge amount of thought had gone into the way that he would play. And a huge amount of practice, generally behind the scenes practice, was what he took a while. And those thoughts on cricket resulted in uh, a lot of very entertaining uh, cricket writing, as we've already mentioned. Uh, he wrote on The Art of Cricket, his 1912 book Cricket, also known as Batsmanship, uh, and he wrote the accompanying text to George Beldham's iconic photographic series of great batsmen, bowlers and fielders, as you mentioned earlier, um, which were published in the first decade of the 20th century. Are his cricket writings now purely historical or can they still be useful today? Um, I think the, the books are still useful, not least the, the books that you've just mentioned, where, which give us this phenomenal record, both written and photographic, of the key characters from the golden age of cricket. So I think uh, he's helped give us a really definitive record of the, the cricketers of that time. I think the game is, is the better for it. Um, but one of the things I tried to do in the in the book was 
to yes give CB Fry credit for his, uh, his his cricketing achievements, but also full credit I think for his achievements as a writer because I think he'd been regarded as you know quite a good writer, and that was something mentioned in in previous you know, articles and books about him. But I think he deserved a lot more credit than he'd previously received. So I think you've mentioned already a whole load of the, the books that he was involved in. He also edited his own magazine, C.B. Fry's magazine, which went on for years and years and years. And he was obviously often producing that at the same time as playing for Sussex in particular. So that was a big, big commitment. Um, then you, you've mentioned really Life Worth Living that came out in the 1930s. Uh, I think one of the most truly remarkable things that he wrote was this column C.B. Fry said, the London Evening Standard in the 1930s. Um, and I've read a few things about it, and, and people have written about what a revolutionary column it was, and you know, the Evening Standard literally used to clear the front page for it. And I thought that can't be true. You can't have a, a cricket column, and I'd read extracts from it. You can't have a cricket column that would be on the front page rather than the back page of the London Evening Standard, particularly in the 1930s with all the drama that was going on in the, in the world at that time. Uh, but I went to the, the British newspaper library at Collindale, as it was in those days. Um, and I think it was on microfilm in those days that I was looking at the, uh, at the Evening Standard. And there is, yeah, one extraordinary front page that sort of summarises it all. So you've got the front page split in half, left-hand column is whatever was going on, Munich crisis or whatever at the time. Right-hand column, C.B. Fry says it is there on the, on the front page. The Standard attached such importance to it, that that's the prominence that uh, it was given. And, you know, there are a number of records from people at the time saying that this is one of very few things in the standards uh, history. You've got people you know, queuing at the news vendors so they could get their copy of the standard as early as possible and read not only the news, but read CB Fry says from Lords or the Oval or wherever it might have been. So, yeah, I didn't believe it until I actually saw a copy of the standard from the 30s itself. Mm. Extraordinary. Um... Ian, I mentioned in my introduction to this podcast that you're currently researching a new book about the first World Cup in 1975, and I'm sure many listeners are thrilled to hear that. Um, there was a similar, albeit much smaller, format undertaken in 1912, known as the Triangular Series, involving Australia, England, and South Africa in England. Um, what can you tell us about that and Fry's involvement in that series? Yeah, C.B. Fry was one of the sort of prime movers in making sure that the, the competition would take place. At the time, there were big gaps between um, other countries, other test-playing countries coming to England. The only other test-playing countries at the time were Australia and South Africa. And so to sort of fill in some of the gaps between Australia visiting and South Africa visiting, C.B. Fry and some others thought, well, okay, let's have a competition that brings all three nations together. And so that happened for the first time, as you say, in 1912, the Triangular Tournament. Um, and C.B. Fry not only had been a prime mover in organising it, uh, he was the England captain for that for that series. Um, but it was a rather ill-fated um, tournament. Um, so it was, was sort of the World Cup of its time through, uh, with the three test play nations of that period. Um, but yeah, there was no World Cup again until 1975, partly because the, one in, the competition in 1912 was pretty disastrous. The South Africans proved to be a lot weaker than everyone expected. There have been some uh, behind-the-scenes disputes uh, amongst the Australian players. They didn't like the way the tour was going to be managed or uh, some of the funding arrangements. So a pretty weak Australian team came to England for that. And the weather was just diabolical throughout the entire uh, summit, really. 
So I think there was a phrase, I think it might have been in the Wallace Myers book, saying that C.P. Fry was the captain who had the, the wettest summer since Noah. And it was that bad. Every match was sort of seriously, seriously rain affected. Uh, but eventually, you know, England uh, emerged triumphant from it. CB had struggled badly during the competition for runs, but finally delivered the goods in the, in the what proved to be the deciding match. Uh, so his England's career and England captaincy did end on a high with England with the uh, triangular tournament, the sort of first World Cup this time, I suppose. On the domestic front, Fry married a domineering woman called Beatrice Sumner in 1898, despite she being 10 years his senior. How do you explain his marriage to Beatrice and what did he gain from marrying her? Uh, my goodness, that's a really big, big question. Um, she ha- I think, you know, I probably can't summarise it really. I think you have to read either the, uh, the book I wrote or the book by Ronald Morris about her to realise the sort of very scandalous uh, background that she had. She'd been pursued from a, a very young age by a married, uh, very wealthy banker, Charles Hall of the Hall banking family. Um, and that was a relationship that, well, it was the love of, he was the love of her life and vice versa. Um, it was a relationship that uh, Hall was told to discontinue at various stages, um, but he never did. And ultimately, um, C.B. Fry was, well, some people say that he was sort of persuaded to, to marry her, to give her some respectability, to take her off Charles Hall's hands. And the theory goes that uh, in return for this, uh, Fry was given money by Charles Hall. Uh, that's it basically cleared the debts that caused him serious problems when he was at Oxford. Uh, and money would also enable him to give up his career uh, he didn't particularly relish as a school teacher and enable him to concentrate on cricket and you know, exploiting his cricket, uh, cricketing potential to the full. Um, so that, I think, is the way that it's often been seen. Fortunately, with the help I had from the, the Fry family when uh, researching the book, um, I came across letters between C.B. and Beatrice, which made me think that actually there was a lot of um, affection between them and it was a sort of genuine marriage rather than a marriage of convenience um but yeah it was a marriage that may have worked for a while but i think it went you know, quite seriously quite seriously wrong um and she was she became an extremely difficult woman to be married to i think and uh, also an extremely well stern doesn't even do justice to it as a stern uh manageress if you like of mercury naval training college um so I think it was a very, very difficult marriage, and I think it, over time, contributed to the, the mental, mental illness that CB experienced quite acutely uh, in the late 1920s. You know, I think there are a number of factors at play there. He had a breakdown in his last year at Oxford. Um, there were some signs during various stages of his cricket career that he struggled uh, with nerves, several references to him being quite highly strong. But I think what contributed to his mental illness in the late 20s and early 30s was uh, to a considerable degree the sort of woman that his wife had become. That certainly was the information I had from uh, C.B. Fry's or C.B. and Beatty's daughter-in-law who took the view that um, Beatrice over time rather ruined C.B. Fry's life and uh, exacerbated the mental health problems that he'd long had. So it's a pretty a pretty sad story unfortunately. Um, but yeah it's um and I think an extraordinary read if, if you 
people would like to read the Ronald Morris book, I think that really does give a very, very good insight into Beatrice and her character. And then sort of my book has a sort of rather inevitably sort of edited version of that because it's a book about C.B. Fry rather than purely about Beatrice. Um, but I think it was a painful marriage. I think it resulted in a lot of pain for the boys who trained with the military as well. That concludes part one of this episode on the life and cricket career of C.B. Fry, featuring my guest, Ian Wilton. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter and YouTube. In part two, Ian discusses Fry's cricket legacy, his remarkable statistics, and his infamous meeting with Hitler in the 1930s. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ford. Bye for now. <laughs>